0: Organic free range HTML, wild freshwater CSS, and 21 day mature JavaScript. This is not just a podcast. This is smashing. It's smashing.
1: This episode of the Smashing Podcast, we ask what is user journey mapping and how does it help us build better products? Fiddly talks to Stephanie Walter to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help.
0: It's your weekly update.
1: What's new in Next.js 13, Attila Fasina talks about Next.js, one of the most well-known React frameworks used for production. From new components to font optimization, Attila shares a quick overview and invites you to join his Next.js masterclass taking place later this month. Andrew Stetsenko looks at how to search for a developer job abroad. Working abroad is a popular prospect, yet many people, including professionals in the tech sphere, don't know where to start. In this article, Andrew gives you an ultimate step-by-step guide to finding and making international opportunities happen. Yes! In part one of the Guide to Keyboard Accessibility, Christian Diaz covers HTML and CSS in his Guide to Making Websites Accessible to Keyboard Users. In this article, Christian covers a good set of practices and recommendations on how to use HTML and CSS to create a great experience for keyboard users. Bravo! Noah Mashney and Mark Stedman take a look at using automated test results to improve accessibility. The huge increase in automated accessibility testing adoption is a wonderful first step, but ultimately its impact is limited if we don't know what to do with the results. In this article, Noah and Mark share their approach to how to leverage the automated test results from the accessibility checks to drive change and reach sustainable digital accessibility transformation. Oh yeah! In a guide to image optimization on JAMstack sites, Alba Silvente reminds us that images are an essential asset on the web, so optimizing them and being up-to-date with the latest techniques is important. Alba shows us the theoretical and practical solutions to the most common problems when working with images, and how to automate them by using a headless CMS and an image CDM. Whoa! And that is your weekly update.
0: Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com articles.
2: She's a UX expert, researcher, and product designer with expertise in design and strategy. She lives in Luxembourg, teaches at school and universities, and facilitates workshops in small and large teams. Not a day passes by without Stephanie sharing what she has learned on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and in her wonderful weekly roundup called the pixels of the week. She recently wrote a book on user journey maps and currently works for Maltem Consulting at the European investment bank all around enterprise UX challenges. So we know she is a fantastic designer and problem solver, but did you know that she once had a full 45 minutes long conference talk on pizza recipe examples? My smashing friends, please welcome Stephanie Walter. Hello, Stephanie. How are you doing today?
0: Yay, I'm smashing, and it's Friday, oh. so, yeah.
2: <laughs> Yay, yeah, it's Friday. Does Friday usually mean pizza day for you?
0: Yeah, pizza or Indian food as well.
2: <laughs> okay, that sounds wonderful. Well, Stephanie, it's always such a pleasure to to see you. Uh, I know that you're, you've you been speaking, you spoke at a smashing Barcelona, I think, a while back. It feels like it was, yeah. I don't know, 100, 150 years ago. <laughs> uh, so... It's always kind of, I always learn so much from you. So maybe it's a good idea to start by just asking you to share a little bit of your story. Um, so how did you even end up getting into this? I know that much of your time is spent around Enterprise UX. Um, but, you know, eventually you had to go through a lot of different things. And I know you did a lot of different things throughout your career to get there. So maybe share a little bit about your background and your story.
0: Yeah, so I have a master's degree in design and languages it's a, it's a little bit strange it's both it's a, a degree where you learn how to build websites and how to translate them basically and after that i uh, decided to do an internship in germany so i was working for a company and uh, i think i finished what i was supposed to do in 3 months instead of 6 So they said, hey, do you want to do mobile apps? I was like, yeah, I've never done that, but sure. So I got interested and uh, at the time there was uh, not a lot of documentation on mobile uh, native design, but there was something on um, Apple guideline and it was called human-computer interaction, something like that. So it kind of drove me into HCI and UX design so we had usability class um, at the university we had kind of a few hours of how do you do usability tests but that was basically it and then during my internship I discovered UX design and I thought like oh this is actually what I want to do you know it's quite interesting understanding user needs and really building products and services that try to fit and match those needs so I worked in Germany then I went back to France to work for a web agency. And I always said, like, yeah, if I'm going to leave the agency, I'm going to leave France. So this is basically what I did. And I got hired at the University of Luxembourg as a research assistant in the human computer interaction uh, department. So it was very interesting to work in an uh, academic place. And after that, I decided to go back to private sector. And um, I was lucky I worked with a company that had a lot of different contracts in a lot of different areas. And this is really when I started specializing in enterprise UX, because they were doing a lot of things that were either B2B or b 2 b to c But it was always like... Ugly, complex dashboards and a oh, lot. Oh, this sounds exciting, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, I remember I had to uh, to help with the design of a form that was for um Luxembourgish customs, and like the form was so complicated in terms of levels that I printed it on a piece of paper and I just like drew lines to understand the hierarchy and information architecture of that and. It's a little bit complicated because it's like you have to have a number, and all the numbers tax up. So if you have the tax number, every single digit means something. So it's like apples that were um, harvested between uh, October and November in specific countries in Europe that are designed to become cider. All of that, <laughs> it's a number. So you have wow, this. Well, that kind does of...
2: sound like a very exciting exercise uh, in <laughs> yeah, design.
0: Crazily complex. It's like, uh, but I have eight levels. We have six levels in HTML. (laughs) H1, 2, (laughs) 3, 4, 5, 6.
2: What do we do? But then look at that. You haven't established yourself as an expert in helping other people harvest apples, but instead you decided to jump more into design and UX work.
0: Yeah. So it was uh, a lot of different really, really cool stuff around that. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm never going to be a fancy designer. Like those designers who do amazing websites for marketing campaigns or like, I, I don't know, uh, I know a lot of people who do really cool stuff around museums museum and things like very immersive. I was like, yay, I like complex, challenging, super heavy information architecture and solving problems for people who have to work with a tool on a daily basis. And I was like, okay, I think this is kind of the kind of challenge that I like and I want to keep on working on that. So. Oh,
2: that's yeah, yeah. interesting. So, so it's it's always kind of um, fascinating story to me because I think that we have a lot of articles, you know, about designing a perfect button and picking the right icons and you know making responsive tables and you know navigation things like that. But when I dive deep into this really, really complicated world of enterprise applications or you know multi level like six, seven levels of navigation and I don't know, 20, 25 multi-form pages with PDFs integrated and and all of that. (laughs) I'm wondering, I mean, I know that this is kind of your life, um, most part of it. I'm wondering at this point, do you think that the world in which we're living, the enterprise world, is undiscovered or are there a lot of books, uh, articles, resources on that? How do you feel in that world?
0: Honestly, there's not a lot of content that specifically talked to specifically talk to that. And I don't know why. Maybe because NDAs and things like that, There's a lot of stuff that you can show in those, uh, in those areas. Also, let's face it. It's not fancy. No one wants to see an interface that is supposed to help you optimize truck um, driving through the area or something super complicated, you know. So it's not like self-explanatory. So a lot of people, they don't put those on the portfolios because today there's still this idea that you need some wow stuff in the portfolio. So right. I think there's a lot of people around here that actually work in enterprise UX with complex software like that. But there's not a lot of content about it. <laughs> But why yes. is still uh, a mystery to me?
2: <laughs> well, you are changing that, right? I think I think in many ways it's just um, the fact that mm, what really surprises me really is that uh, we see a lot of case studies about portfolio designs, about immersive campaigns, like you mentioned, things related to branding. Uh, I don't know, big yeah. redesigns that happen in big companies and so on, but not necessarily about those things which are. You know, in, I don't know insurance companies and truck configurators and whatnot, right? So that's that's kind of always challenging for me. But I, I also want to ask you, maybe on another side of that, when you think about enterprise Vx, I think that many of us uh, listening this uh, later or you know in years from now maybe still will be thinking about long meetings, long deadlines, <laughs> complex workflows, a lot of legacy. Is that Enterprise X or how would you describe it? Can, how would you define it?
0: It honestly depends. Uh, you can arrive on a project where they have nothing and then you, there's no legacy. You build from the ground, but you still have a lot of meetings because the the business is complex. So you, you need time to understand the business. You also need help. So you can't really go around those meetings because they are usually kind of useful to help you understand exactly what is going on. But then, yeah, it depends. Legacy is one problem. Another problem that I see and foresee in the future is um, depending on when we are, those uh, like Gartner, Bloomberg, and all of those big companies, they either tell uh, people that they need to internalize the team, and then you need to do in-house development. So you have a bunch of developers who will develop the, the enterprise product, often without designers, and then a few years later, Gartner goes like, no, you know what? No, you, package is the new thing. So stop having an internal IT team, buy packages. And, and then everyone decides to buy package. And then there's a new wave from, mm-hmm. I don't know, Gartner, Bloom, whatever, Harvest, Business Review, those people, you know, that big company listen to and they say yeah no let's go hybrid you know let's do something like a package but then the package is the business web services and then you can still do the ui the front ends like so this kind of this cycling through, and it's really, really funny because if you worked in such industry for already um, a few years, you, you've seen the waves of, oh, right. let's build everything internally. Oh, let's build a package. But look, the business is so complicated. We we bought a package and now we discover it doesn't fit our needs. Ah, I think we need to rebuild something internally. And then, ah oh, but building things internally costs a lot of money. So let's do a package. You know, it's kind of every every three years it comes around and
2: i think it's it's also related to the fact that there is just a lot of layers and with every layer comes a bit of politics involved and everybody has their own interests and kpis and goals and i'm wondering how do you even operate in this kind of environment i mean you must have very strong (laughs) governance very strong guidelines and very strong buy-in from the top that you know, you, because I mean, the reason why I bring this up is because uh, your work has been known for being, you know, you focus very much on accessibility, inclusive design, user centric design. But then at the same time, if you have all the different layers of politics and all these different layers of business decisions, which in some, some situations might be more important even than the user research part, how mm-hmm. do you even navigate that space? Do you find this? Yeah. Mm, Or is it maybe the case that now in 2023, or 22 still, uh, when we're recording this, that UX is kind of a part of what we do, that it's understood by stakeholders?
0: (laughs) I think it's not bad. The way we do it is uh, we navigate around the mess. Basically, we try to stay away. And I am lucky. I work with amazing people who actually shield the team from all the political stuff. So I have people who are working with us who try to kind of deal with that so that we on the, the team can do our daily job. And um, also, I think I'm lucky because I have uh, my manager understands, uh, my en- yeah, manager, or like the person I'm referring to, uh, understands what is UX design and why it's useful, so they will fight basically for me to have some time to talk to the users but I, i'm super lucky like in the place where i work i think we are the only project that's actually able to have a very user centered approach and in a lot of area in enterprise ux is not Not everyone is that lucky. Like in a lot of places you have analysts who will ask to the user what do they want and then the users are expected to provide the solution and then the person will just write a technical ticket saying the user wants an export to Excel. Well, if you go there and you're like, you talk to the user and like, yeah, but uh, today you don't have an export to Excel button. So what do you do? And the user shows you the table. They will um, copy paste the whole um, the whole table, paste it in Excel. And then you're like, OK, so it's in Excel. What do you do now? And then the person goes into one of the columns that is the status of uh, something. So it's either active or inactive. And she just removes all the inactive from the table. And she's like, so we have an analyst that is writing a story saying the user needs an export to Excel button. But the user doesn't need an export to Excel button. In this very specific situation, she needs to remove all the inactive stuff from the screen. And yet the export to Excel is the solution she came up with because this is what she does today but we could also maybe have filters in the browser directly on that table, you know, more than tables and things. So the user need here is not to export to Excel, is to clean up some stuff on the screen. And then you All come right. here and you're like, yeah, but actually, no, we're not going to do the export. To, uh, we will do the export to Excel for other reasons <laughs> because it's still needed. But for this specific user need, it's not an export to Excel that we will provide as a sol- solution is a filter on a um, on the table and unfortunately in a lot of places you have this kind of old school analysis where they will go to people ask them what they want and then it will implement it and hopefully find a place somewhere (laughs) in the screen in a corner to put that button or that feature so yeah it's really really complicated but i think at the same time a lot of people like me are starting to have this kind of change and pushing things forward but then you don't only make you don't make friends all the time then yeah, the, the old school people are not super happy about you coming and saying, uh, wait a minute that's a weird requirement. Can we talk about that and really try to understand what's going on here?
2: Yeah so I think yeah, it's, definitely for me it's also just a really this interesting part because I feel like everything is in a way, everything is a little bit of a fight. Sometimes it's a bigger fight, sometimes it's a smaller fight. Uh, (laughs) But one thing is, like even those little things like discovery, I can imagine that it might take, I don't know, literally months to just discover uh, what are the user needs, how do we make it work, and then apply the good old UX process to it. I mean, it has, I mean, maybe you could describe your UX process in general for those kind of projects. Is it just a, You know, regular way, how we do UX. So did you, do you have to adjust, uh, do something else? Maybe some methodologies work better than the others. Uh, What has your experience been so far?
0: So for me, it's actually faster, I think. Because here I work with, uh, like, my users are the people who work for the, the bank I work for. We know don't work in the same department, but for recruiting user, for uh, tests and things like that, it's actually easier. I can have a list of the people who use the tool. So in this specific case, for me, discovery, it actually goes a little bit faster because we lose less time in the recruitment. Also, the when you go to the people and you say we are going to talk about the tool that you use in order to improve it, most of the time people are super happy to talk to you, even if they have a lot of things to do. They're happy to be invested, that you take time to talk to them, to get invested in the project, and it's uh, a tool they use on a daily basis, so... I think in my specific case, but here you have to understand the context is I work in the IT department internally and we provide tools for the users. So I'm not working for a SaaS company that provides B2B uh, employee mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tools that they resell. So here it's very specific. Um, Context and for me, it's actually easier uh, in this case. But yeah, for the, for the process, what we have is, uh, so we are redesigning a tool. So we have some basic data, which is server logs that say, okay, uh, how many people visited this page? But then that was kind of the baseline to say, if we migrate some pages, we should migrate first the one that were visited the most. And we have kind of two streams. We have the, the pages visited the most. And also we have things around, um, user tasks. So the user, they need to do some things in the whole process of, uh, loan at the bank. So to give you some context, the bank is, um, is, uh, lending money. It's just that it's a European investment bank. So they're lending money to other countries, to other banks. So it's not a loan for your car. <laughs> But it's kind of has the same principle. You need to build a project. You need to explain what you are going to do with the money, how it's going to be used and stuff like that. So there's a lot of different steps and there's a lot of tasks and activities around that. So a lot of the things we do is uh, we start with the user tasks. So sometimes people ask me about persona and I'm like, yeah, if I do persona, I have, I have 300 of those. And for me, it doesn't matter if the person is an assistant, a lawyer, an engineer, or like, we don't discriminate based on persona. We discriminate and we do the user research on specific tasks. And then we check what type of user need to do this task at which step of the process. And in the discovery phase, we will involve the different users from different departments who will have to perform this task. Um, we do a lot of interviews. So usually we have kind of... Interview script where, so I prepare my research plan with the objective of the research. Then I write my questions to kind of understand um, what people are doing. Often it's kind of open interview where you will ask a few questions and then you will have uh connects topics that will go around sometimes we go way beyond the research that we're currently doing but we're like yeah, we're gonna write this down because eventually we will tackle the other topic that person is currently talking about so i'm just gonna write it down and then take a note that whenever i will tackle that specific topic oh that's a user i can also talk to you to uh, about that so we do a lot of interviews we do some um kind of light shadowing where we ask people to show us, to share their screen when we're working on a specific feature or page, we would be like, okay, then show us where do you go? How does it work? So we do a lot of... it's not really observational. Yeah, it's kind of observational studies, but like with a screen sharing. So we are not observing them work, as in they do the daily basis. we behind them, but we ask them to show how do they perform a task or an activity, so that we can get a better understanding of that. And I'm right. also working a lot with um, business analysts to understand the business processes because this is super complicated, and I can't kind of uh, I can't know it all by heart. Um, to start with so yeah mostly discovery interviews uh, then we will do some prototype when it's a big feature and uh, some usability testing on those prototypes Uh, what we do is if it's not such a big feature we would sometimes just do a design implement it and then ask feedback on the implemented version if it's something we're pretty confident about and we know we will not have too many user issues or too many questions about that, then we will implement it and ask questions or do some light testing once it's implemented. But yeah, and then we what we did is uh, we onboarded new users and we gave them the user diary, which is an Excel sheet because I work for a bank. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So the, the idea was that uh, ah. they use the new interface for a month to see if anything is missing, if there's some things they don't understand. And for a month, they have this diary where they can log every time there's something that prevents them from do it, doing their job. Whether it's a bug, a content missing, a feature or something, they uh, put it in the diary log and then we... Um, we check those diary. We usually come back to them with specific questions about certain area, and then we we keep on um, improving the product. So we're not just doing kind of discovery before launching a feature. We also do a lot of um, back and forth once something is launched. And then, yeah. No, we're that sounds with, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. With support people. So uh, we don't do the training unless uh, someone asks us to, but we have uh, every department basically has some support people who are helping the user with uh, different uh, tools, including our tools. So what I usually do is I attend uh, those smaller, like training sessions because it's quite interesting also to see how people react the first time they see the interface, what are their questions, stuff like that. So we, yeah, we collaborate uh, a lot. It takes a tremendous amount of time. Time, because then it's like one-hour meetings where we, you just sit and listen and watch what the people are doing. So in terms of time, it takes a lot of time, but it also helps gather interesting data.
2: Right? Um, Do you also use sort of a, a speak aloud protocol when people are going through a, a tasks, or you just observe mostly how people deal with uh, I don't know with with, uh, with an interface, kind of completing their tasks?
0: No, we ask them to speak aloud. So we explain mm-hmm. what speak aloud means because. If you're not UX designer, you might not mean. Yes, yes, right. We try to kind of make people feel comfortable. So some people are amazing at that. They will just tell you everything that is going on in their brain, where they click, what's weird. And some people, even after you told them, uh, please feel free to explain to us what you see on the screen, what's happening in your mind, why do you want to click somewhere, all of that, they will still just, like, Click and say nothing. So we try to nudge them, like, oh yeah. Well, then when they sob, you 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 say something like, oh, you stopped. What is happening? Can you explain us why? So we try to nudge them without kind of helping them but um yeah it's uh it's not right. academic research
2: <laughs> yeah yeah I understand. but do you feel Stephanie like at this point after all these interviews that you can actually read people's minds when they start clicking around or tap on buttons and so on can you just pre- predict what people mm. are doing or do you feel like uh oh, it's always uh almost a miracle surprises are always in there <laughs>
0: Depends on the people, like some stuff you can kind of predict, especially when we test some some of the older things that were developed years ago. We kind of kind of kind of anticipate the issues. But no, sometimes on the new things we have interesting uh results, and you're like, yeah, actually that makes sense. We should have thought about this. That's a really good idea. We will we will do that. Like uh, we had a column with the name of the person. And uh, we have a place where you have uh, the team member for a specific project. And in the team um, place, what I did, I put a mail to on everyone's name. So you click on it, it auto-fills an email with the name of the project, a nice little introduction, and then you have the, and people are super happy about that. Because then they don't need to copy paste the email of the person right, anymore, right. they do all of that. And then I have another page where I have, have the name of the person. I, I didn't even think about putting the link there. And the user was like, yeah, but we have the link on the teams here we have also the name why is it not like ah actually yeah, <laughs> yeah that right. makes
2: sense right that yeah. makes a lot
0: of sense yeah, yeah. also it's yeah. easy to develop so yeah quick win definitely yeah
2: yeah, excellent. Well, uh, one thing that surprised me is that you wrote this entire book about customer journey maps uh, <laughs> and you published customer journey maps, but you did not mention customer journey map as a part of your workflow. Uh, does it, does ah. it not quite fit or is it just something that you do for other projects?
0: Uh, because customer journey map for me is not um, a research method, it's a tool that you build based on the research so mm-hmm. basically, some of the interviews, uh, we worked on um, a project that was um, people have to validate tasks. And we actually built a customer journey map uh, for that. But we basically did, we did some interviews and the customer journey map was kind of an artifact, a r- r- kind of... Results of uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the user interview. So, no, I use customer journey maps a lot, but it's as if I'm saying, I did, and I didn't want to mention that I do wireframes, you know. <laughs> to yeah, me, yeah, it's, sure. it's, it's a kind of same thing. It's a, uh, you're not building a customer journey map to build a customer journey map. You are basically doing some research and sometimes you present it as a customer journey map, sometimes as a report, sometimes as an empathy map. But yeah, definitely, we, we we have this amazing customer journey where one of the triggers is human notification. <laughs> and it always makes me laugh so much, which is they have a lot of email and all of the stuff for, for notification, but kind of the biggest notification is at some point an assistant picking up the phone and saying, hey, look, you need to validate this uh, before 6 to 9. Could you please do it? <laughs> so we have this whole journey with human notification in the middle. <laughs> Which well, is, you, well, yeah, quite well,
2: that's that's the enterprise world for you, I guess, yep. in some way or the other. Um, I'm also wondering now, uh, you know, I can only imagine that it takes quite a bit of time to even, you know, work in this space. But then you always find time to, I don't know, read a lot, apparently, because every time I, I jump into LinkedIn or on a blog, it's just an incredible wealth of resources all around things from CSS to UX to you know, freebies, goodies, whatever, everything. So, how does that work? I mean, how do you? Where do you find all of this stuff? Do you just <laughs> spend time? I don't know during your uh, pizza uh, experiences by reading articles all around design, front end, and UX.
0: Okay, so the big secret is most of the articles I don't read them; I listen <gasps> to them.
2: No, come on, Stefan, you can't say that. No, I.
0: I oh, so you to listen, them. To them. Yeah, I so, listen to them. Yeah, listen to them.
2: Please Please share more
0: details. uh, uh, In Firefox, you have, I think it's called reading mode, but you can ask Firefox to read the article to you. So usually a lot of the super long in-depth articles, I don't have the patience to read them on a screen. So I will just... Put the heads uh, heads in on, on my ears, and then I will uh, listen to, to the article while cooking, cleaning the dishes, uh, doing right, the boxes right. for the moving of my flats and stuff like that. So, so yeah, that's the secret. It's like uh, I'm multitasking, and often I'm listening to the to the articles while doing uh, manual labor. <laughs> that doesn't
2: right, but need I my assume, brain. right, but I assume that compiling the list of links and writing on LinkedIn is done manually.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a, a tool where it's basically I can schedule things on LinkedIn and Twitter at the same time, so it makes it a little bit easier. I just. Allows me to post. Uh, so I, I enter it once. Sometimes I need to check uh, for the um, the handles because uh, the tool is able to get the uh, Twitter handles, but not the LinkedIn handles. So if I post something on LinkedIn and I need to tag someone, I need to go back to the post and edit it, which is a little bit annoying. And also sometimes I will not read anything for a whole day and just read, I don't know, 10 articles during the weekend. And I don't want to annoy people with an article during the weekend. So I will just like schedule the post so, so that it's not kind of overwhelming and posting everything at the same time. Right. So right. yeah, organizations and uh, having uh, an
2: AI,
0: a screen reader uh, read the articles to me.
2: Right. I think that Enterprise World did try, uh, taught you how to be very well organized, but I'm sure that you've been organized even before that as well. <laughs>
1: This episode of The Smashing Podcast is brought to you by DQ Systems, the makers of the beloved and powerful AXE DevTools browser extension. You probably didn't set out to build a website that was purposefully inaccessible to people with disabilities, but you may have if you aren't testing for digital accessibility. Start accessibility testing in just minutes with the free AXE DevTools extension for Chrome, Edge or Firefox. Dev teams can find and fix accessibility bugs with very little effort, and no accessibility expertise. If you want to get access to even more features like sharing, saving, exporting, additional semi-automated tests and more, you can sign up for a free trial of Axe DevTools Pro. Visit dq.com slash smashing to get started. That's d-e-q-u-e dot com slash smashing. Remember friends don't let friends ship inaccessible code.
2: Can almost hear some people in the back asking, but 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 I'm interested in getting into enterprise UX. So maybe kind of jumping back on uh, quickly for um, to the topic. Uh, I'm wondering, are there particular roles, skills that you think are absolutely important to be able to comfortably navigate that enterprise UX space, or is it just the regular UX work just <laughs> more challenging?
0: I think definitely information architecture and the ability to make sense of a lot of data and uh, kind of organizational skills as on an uh, information and UI level, because uh, you will get a lot of information thrown at you in enterprise. Like the business is so complicated. That you need to make sense of all the mess. And there's an amazing book that I think it's called Making Sense of the Mess. A.B. Cobalt, she, she wrote a, she wrote a book on information architecture and she wrote a second book on diagrams, which I really uh, like as well. And, uh, so yeah, I would say if you want to work in enterprise UX, it's definitely being able to kind of not be scared of the complexity because you will get a lot of complexity to deal with on a daily basis. And then, yeah, information architecture is one of the biggest skills at some point to to make sure that you arrange the content in a way that makes sense to the user, that you kind of comprehend all the complexity of the business behind that. So, yes, but it's it's a bit. Tricky. Also, I think you need to understand that you might need to let go of all the UI principles that are taught in mainstream articles, like make the the font bigger and put some white more white space. And no, I have users who want a small font. They want as much data as possible on the screen. They don't want to scroll. So if you could condense everything on one single screen. So, you know, all these fancy articles that say, yeah, big font size are trendy. It's like, yeah, sure, on blogs and marketing websites, but in my world, nah.
2: Yeah, so (laughs) I I can only agree with you on that because I think in many ways what um, my job has been is really trying to keep, As I'm really literally also show as much information as possible in a given place. And then, of course, you have a table with filters, with sorting, with multi-sorting, with all those things. And they all (laughs) have to be visible. And then you need to add some batch actions on top of that and uh, export features and whatnot. And then it has to kind of in some way or the other work on mobile as well. So this is a very different world for sure. So I think that we definitely, it would definitely be a good idea to see just to be able to explore or see more case studies and work done um, in that world um, as well. But I heard that Enterprise UX actually is just one part of your story because you're also interested in other things, uh, like, for example, illustrations and graphic design. And (laughs) on your beautiful blog, you also, of course, have your beautiful illustrations. And uh, every now and again, one can see your illustrations. But do you even have time for it now that you are so... I don't know. So deep dive into this messy world of tables, filters, uh, forms, and all of that. Do you have time for your beautiful graphic design illustration work?
0: Yeah, usually in the evenings or weekends uh, when I have a a topic that I'm interested into. This is also why I could not be a professional illustrator because I don't know how do you illustrate something someone else asks you to do so all the illustration i'm doing is just like yeah i have this really fun idea I'm, I'm gonna draw it and that's basically it so i would not be able to have someone tell me oh could you do an illustration on that on that so i admire illustrators who are able to do that like work for other people and stuff for me it's kind of just a, a hobby and just having fun illustrating um kind of funny things. And uh, also, I blame Instagram. They have those domestica advertisements. Right, so right. domestica is a website where you can learn a lot of um, art, craft and stuff. Really, like there's illustration. I think there's pottery, how to build... Um uh, furniture out of woods. I've done some courses on that. So it's really all the creativity stuff. And sometimes they're like pushing me advertisement on my Instagram it's like, hey, do you want to do a new class on Kawaii Illustration? I was like, damn it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I bought <But>
0: another it's... <laughs> class on Kawaii Illustration uh, right. just for fun. All
2: right, but it's unlikely that you're going to give up your wonderful world of Enterprise UX for that. Will you?
0: <laughs> no. No, Uh, that's it. uh, I prefer, uh, I think it's kind of tough to be in enterprise UX because there's a lot of politics and uh, uh, so it's very, very demanding. But uh, artist world, illustration world... Damn, this sounds even worse with uh, everyone thinking they can just do whatever they want, copyright issue, content theft. AIs who know who are fed by styles of a specific artist and you can create. Well,
2: well, well who stuff? knows, Stephanie? Maybe at some point we, we're just waiting for a startup to be building an enterprise AI constructor bot, uh, something using Mid Journey and whatnot. <laughs> I would not to
0: see that. But that's the, the same as a package. And uh, everywhere where they bought a package, I saw it failed. I, either it didn't work or you end up with uh, some users super frustrated. Like in one company, they bought a package and they could not have it evolve anymore because the company went bankrupt. And they basically repurposed some of the labels. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this label is something, but it does something completely else. And everyone knows that if you want to do that, you need to click on this label that has nothing to do, but they can't change the
2: label. <laughs> oh, that's a little bit sad.
0: So so, yeah, so I'm like, yeah, I'm curious to see what um, AI and stuff can do for enterprise UX, but honestly...
2: You're yeah, a little I skeptical. Know. I can tell from your voice and from the way you yeah. answer that question. <laughs> well uh but I'm wondering if your students challenge you because of course you also teach at a university in Strasbourg and also online and you also provide mentorship. Uh and not only do I wonder just how much how, just how do you find time for it all, but I understand that one I mean for me it's kind of the same story. I always kind of make time for it. It's not about finding time, it's kind of making time for it. Uh, But I do want to ask um, at this point, what is for you the most rewarding part about this? Uh, I can tell that, of course, you're very passionate about accessibility and um, design, interface design, and uh, the world of enterprise UX, one can tell, of course, as well. Um, I think it might be a little bit difficult to convey to students like all the difficult part about enterprise UX and how to apply UX work in enterprise UX setting? Or are you teaching something that's maybe a little bit more just general ux And yeah. again, uh, just the, the experience, like what would be the most rewarding part for you of, you know, taking time to do this?
0: So I'm teaching uh, mobile usability and UX design applied to mobile and responsive design. So Mm -hmm. it's not specifically Enterprise UX. But uh, the cool thing is I'm teaching a a framework which helps people build products and uh, services with reusable components. And I think that's the interesting part because then the students are super happy that I'm providing a framework to help them deal with the complexity. And sometimes they will be like, yeah, I'm not sure where the teacher is going with this framework. But then uh, after they started working, they're like, oh, I remembered your course and then I used that uh, framework and it totally helped me kind of make sense of the mess and stuff. So I I had that, like I did, um, uh, I have a, a very small part of my course that is dedicated to information architecture and how to build reusable components for responsive web design. So components that can adapt to different screen sizes or that you can reuse in a big area, in a smaller area. So I'm not going in all the media query and container query detail. That would be the technical part. But basically, I'm preparing designers to be ready for mm-hmm. that. And like I had a lot of feedback that was like, oh, I went back to work on Monday and I reused what you taught us. And I think this is what drives me, you know, like the best feedback you can give someone who is teaching a work. Workshop is like on Monday morning, I was able to apply something I learned from you last week, which is amazing because then you really made a difference in that person's work. And uh, so, yeah, and I think it's the same for students. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that they are not super convinced that everything I'm teaching them today is going to be useful. But at some point later in their career, they will remember like, oh, yeah, we didn't know how to decide if we needed to build a mobile or a native app. But then we remembered what Stephanie said about starting with the user need and checking what makes sense based on the user needs. So like user need first and then decide on the technology instead of deciding technology and try to fit the user need into that technology, which makes very little sense. So it's yeah. often about, but it's the same for some of my classes. Like while you are in the class, you're like, yeah, okay, it's interesting, but I'm not sure if I'm get, ever going to reuse that. And then a few okay. years later, you're working and it's like, huh? Yeah, actually, that was very useful.
2: Oh, that's, so, yeah. That is a, indeed, a, uh, I'm sure, a very rewarding experience. I think it's always just getting some sort of a feedback from people who, uh, I don't read something that you posted or found something useful and all this is in many ways kind of the fuel of motivation to keep going and explore and keep exploring and keep growing. Um, but also... You know actually, one thing that I ask myself a lot, like based based on that, um, every time it comes to a point where I realize, okay, well, uh, these are all some you know bits of knowledge that I've gathered and I've presented maybe, and then some learned from that, I always try to look back and see, "Ah, when did I learn that actually, or how did I learn that?" and uh, how did it evolve over time maybe So maybe the the question that I'm uh, thinking of at this point is when you look back at your career uh what do you wish you would have told yourself ten, fifteen fifteen years ago or what do you wish you i don't know how would you wish you would have structured your uh career or do you feel comfortable where you are like do you do you feel like you would have done something a little bit differently looking back okay.
0: I would have loved to have more uh, psychology like uh, I have this whole thing on um, we, we we created some cards on cognitive biases um, a few months, uh, years ago with a friend and it's kind of blown up yeah. like I have people in different institutions and in some company using it to help their um, um, colleagues understand cognitive biases and definitely uh, I think I would have liked to have a little bit more background in psychology. Psychology, cognitive psychology behavioral psychology also as a UX designer but at the same time I think when I was doing my when I was a student this kind of UX career path didn't really exist per se so in France you had something called ergonomie uh, which is <laughs>
1: ah, I have an issue with
0: no that's my okay. problem ergonomics um, ergonomics is like chair and posture yeah, and how yeah. do you make sure like physical so but ergonomy in French it's both it's either the chair but it can also be the usability part so
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: it's a tricky word to translate. <laughs>
1: right, but right.
0: so there's a, some master degree that, um, in psychology that you prepare you to become an ergonomist in the English version of the, the word, which is you go to the people, you observe how they work and then you try to help them with postures or moving around things, but also like adapting their workspace, um, and adapting the processes and stuff like that. And it's kind of linked to master in, um, um, It's a master in... No, it's a license. Uh, So it's a bachelor in uh, psychology in France. But this is not UX design. Again, it's something else. So I wish I had kind of more of a background in that. So now I'm trying to compensate with some online learning, some books and all of that. But yeah, definitely I would say if you want to become a UX designer and uh, really if you are interested into that... Having a little bit of background in how does the human brain works when it comes to uh, memory, how do we learn, how do we perceive information, all of that can be very, very helpful.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I remember the last one that would be that's always something I ask because who knows who is going to listen to this uh, podcast at some point uh, well this year or in a few years Uh, is there a particular dream project that you ever wished or always wished you would be working on I mean you are working on some pretty complex environments uh, (laughs) and projects already but if you had to pick your battle like what would be one of the really interesting I don't know, products, companies, uh, challenges, a dream projects that you ever wished you could work on?
0: I don't know, honestly, but uh, I think something around maybe service design or more like uh, having stuff built into not only the UI, but also the whole service around it. So maybe connected houses or... You know, kind of helping in different area, maybe working on some tools in a factory, for instance. I would love to do that. Like go there, observe how do the people work and then optimize the tool to help them in their daily, in their daily job. So kind of a mix between a little bit of interface, but also a lot of work around service design, process design, things like that. I think this would be cool. I've seen some, uh, that Airbus, uh, so planes, um, plane right. company was looking for an intern and was like, oh mm. gosh, I would have loved to be a UX intern for Airbus uh, when I started. Because I think it's uh, like so, working on the, the cockpits and the UI the interface of, or, of a plane. That must be something quite challenging and quite fun, so...
2: So you do like a good challenge, one can tell. I uh, will yeah. wait and see, <laughs> wait and see, Stephanie. Wait and see. Who knows? Uh, well, so we've been learning today what enterprise UX is. But maybe as a final word uh, from you, Stephanie, what have you been learning recently? Like you've been publishing, like uh, um, linking to all the articles and mentioning all the tools. What was what were some of the really interesting things that you learned recently?
0: Um... I think I shared it last week. Uh Gary Reed had a super interesting take on double um, w- um WCAG 3.0. And uh, the need or not need of interfaces, a lot of interesting thought on how the web-free is not accessible and not open at all, even if people are trying to sell you that it's open and easy. So, yeah, I really like that, like her take mixing web, um what's coming in the new WCAG and kind of accessibility in the future and how we will include human being in different experiences. Uh, that is something that... uh I really liked that uh, that uh, that talk that she gave because it's really cool to just kind of try to imagine and foresee the future in a not bullshit way. Because it's the end of the year, you know, we will get the trends for next year, and it will be all bullshit. But her talk is actually it sounded grounded on reality, so that was really really cool.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm very excited actually about uh, this plethora of articles around all the cool an important and less important digital trends in twenty twenty three. Always look at them and then think, huh, let's see how how well we or how better we have become in predicting the future. It didn't look very good over the last decade or so at all. Nope. Well, if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Stephanie, you can find her on Twitter where she is at Walter Stephanie and on LinkedIn where she is Stephanie Walter Pro and on her website, Stephanie Walter-Todd Design. Stephanie will will also be running a workshop on designing better products and smashing workshops, so please drop in if you have time. I totally forgot to ask about that, Stephanie, but is it true that you are running that workshop?
0: Yay! I hope so. It should be a lot of fun. <laughs> it should yeah, be so... about yeah, dealing with complexity of product, giving people again a framework to help them, and I hope they will be happy and find something that will help them deal with... Complexity on the work on the Monday morning. Also, oh, I'm a lot of Oh, you do like templates. complexity. Yeah.
2: Uh. Excellent, excellent. So that sounds very, very good. So please do join us on November 28th to December 12th, where we're going to dive in into designing better products with Stephanie. I'm very excited about that. Well, thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. Do you have any parting words of wisdom that you would like to send into the universe by, the, by people who actually managed to listen to the very last sentence of this podcast?
0: No. I don't know. <laughs> I'm ready That's okay. This.
2: That's <laughs> where we all are.
0: Maybe. And uh, yeah, I think stay yeah. safe is still uh, something we need to, to make sure even uh, if the pandemic seems to be a little bit over. Yeah. Stay safe. This is smashing.
1: And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends
0: find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.